Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Pulled from the hottest topics coming across our news desk, I'm Alcina Lloyd, and this is The Daily Download. Today, you'll be listening to a special interview that features Logan Matashami, HousingWire's leading analyst. During this interview, which was conducted at HousingWire's annual conference yesterday, Matashami speaks with HousingWire CEO and founder Clayton Collins about the chaos theory applied to housing. In this episode, the two discuss how the housing market rebounded during the COVID-19 pandemic, the nation's lack of housing inventory, and more. Notably, the conversation is in-depth with hopes of providing our listeners with greater insight on the housing market's resiliency. But before we listen, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Extraordinary challenges demand extraordinary solutions. CoreLogic is uniquely positioned to help you navigate this historic disruption. Whether it's virtual home showings, flexible employment verifications, or automated loan modification engines, CoreLogic delivers the data-driven solutions, targeted insights, and deep domain expertise trusted by the nation's most successful mortgage lenders. Explore how CoreLogic can help you today. Visit corelogic.com forward slash COVID-19. We are thrilled to uh, be greeted by HousingWire's data and and housing analyst, Logan Motoshami. Logan, welcome. It's great to be here. Well, I want to introduce you as a financial writer, blogger, covering the U.S. economy with a specialization in the housing market. As I mentioned, you serve as HousingWire's lead analyst. Um, To the industry, you're known as the chart guy and the housing guru. Um, To your uh, some of your opponents that 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 hope for housing crashes, I think they have other names for you, but we will not share those today. But before we kind of get into the conversation, Logan, I just want to make sure the audience kind of fully recognizes um, why I, I appreciate you. And as a as an analyst, you are a, uh, a business person and you are not afraid to go out on a limb and, and make a bet and hold on to a, a thesis and inform a rationale around what you think is going to happen in the market. And we've had some amazing speakers today with some really analytical perspectives on the housing market. But in most of our capacities and most of our speakers' capacities, they're unable to go out and hold a line and make a bet and really go to bat for the housing market the way that you are able to. And I think that's a very unique thing that you bring to this conversation at Housing Wire. So with that said, Logan, year 2020 was a big year for you. Why is that? Well, all my work has been based on this kind of one principle, that the housing market would have the weakest recovery ever from 2008 to 2019. And this is not just on price. I think one, one of the things we get incorrect in housing is everybody focuses on price. They try to sell that as the aspect of uh, housing economics, which I disagree with. It's based on mortgage demand, new home sales, housing starts. So I set these markers Many years ago that we'll never see 1.5 million housing starts until years 2020 to 2024. Purchase application data will never get to 300 until years 2020 to 2024. So everything looks right in which this is basically in in disagreement with a lot of uh, housing bulls in the previous expansion. But here's 2020. And I was like, okay, I've been waiting for this period for a very long time. So let's go at it. And then, you know, what I saw early and what I think I disagree with everybody is that a lot of people are focused on the COVID aspect of housing. When I think of housing in 2020, I think of February. 
because this party started before COVID and COVID actually took some juice out of the housing market. Uh, uh, and I, to have to explain that uh, during a global pandemic, you have to hold your ground, right? So housing economics is driven by what, demographics and mortgage rates. The two biggest things ever in housing favors are right now in this period because the demographics are the best ever and mortgage rates are lower. So what do we talk about is actually February 3rd. February 3rd for Housing Wire, I brought in the chaos theory, the butterfly effect. This wasn't a forecast that the virus is just about to hit us and you know where we're going to go into this uh, COVID recession. was the fact that when this virus, if it does come, it's going to drive mortgage rates lower. It's going to drive GDP lower. It's going to drive the economy, stock market, everything. But the U.S. has the capacity to come back. Like we've had many shocks before from 2008 to 2019, this time is going to be different. So this is why holding the ground with all the things we've written for Housing Wire, especially in April, bringing this America's back economic model on April 7th, when people say, you're crazy, you're a lunatic, there's no way we're going to be in a depression, and really trying to focus on, hey, listen, we're going to pre present this model to you. You follow this and everything is going to be okay. And guess what? The economic model worked. It was the only virus model that I saw that was written out there. And by July 15th, everything looked good for housing. And now you can see the U.S. economy itself is coming back. So, so Logan, let's go, let's go back a little bit. So you mentioned two big drivers that gave you or give you confidence in, in your model. One, demographics and, and two, interest rates. From my perspective, one of those, you can forecast the other a little bit more challenging. So let's talk about the exact demographic uh, characteristics and drivers that that you take into consideration in your model. Well, here's here's one thing. Before I go into that, mortgage rates can be forecasted. Okay. Mortgage rates have been in a downtrend since 1981 as the bond market has. It's the industry's fault for not realizing this for the last 20 years, because if you go to economic conferences in the last 15 years, everybody keeps on saying mortgage rates have to go higher. Mortgage rates have to go higher. They just simply, no, they don't. They basically have stayed in the channel with a 10-year yield going all the way down here. And this is actually one of the things before the virus hit. I said the 10-year yield, the recessionary yields are going to be between negative 21 basis points and 62 basis points. Uh, so mortgage rates can be uh, uh, predicted, but we live in a world where people think federal debt means higher interest rates. And if there was one conspiracy theory that has ruined so much of the housing discussions for the last 20 years, is this notion that mortgage rates have to go higher because of federal debt. So that's just on the mortgage aspect. But on demographics, you know, it's the same thing I've been saying in every conference for years. We rent, we date, we mate, we get married three and a half years after marriage. We have kids. Housing is a year's 2020 to 2024 story always because people do things later in life. So that age 26 to 32, they're starting to get into that first time home buyer age. These are replacement buyers, right? The reason why the U.S. economy is going to outperform everyone, it's not because of just King Dollar. It's because we have a lot of young people. We have replacement workers. We have replacement consumers. So they're going to get into that home buying age and think of them as replacement buyers. If you get anybody moving up or moving down, you're going to be fine with existing home sales during this period. And all these people are talking about 30, 40, 50% home price crashes. No, my biggest worry was in years 2020 to 2024 that real home prices take off in a in an unhealthy way. And if you did not have COVID-19, that's what we'd be focusing on today is a how unhealthy home prices are rising, which means all these housing bears for the last eight years, which are mostly markedly gimmicks, were terribly wrong because they don't believe in economic models. 
All right. So, so going going back, I want to come back to demographics. But I, you, you earlier earlier you mentioned that you actually can forecast interest rates. And if you're going to go out on a limb and say you can do that, then where do they go from here, Logan? We're um, we're trade we we see rates in the in the two to three percent range. Are we looking at a new normal of long term interest rates in this sub four sub sub five percent range um, as of a mature economy? Here's the thing: at the end of 2014. I started to predict 10-year yield ranges for every forecast article every year after that. And I said the 10-year yield is going to be between 160 and 3% majority of the time. Okay, so you're basically looking three and a quarter to 5%, somewhere around there. For yeah. the most part of, you know, we were there. You know, we had a little brief about 3%. And sometimes when the economy gets weaker, the 10-year yield falls. Now it's different because this global pandemic, if if we did not fiscally stimulate or monetary stimulate the economy, the 10-year yield should have gone negative. It didn't. It held above that 62 basis points, which should have been your clue that the economy was going to recover fast. And we are going to be in a range right now. If this was the end of the year and I would be forecasting new yields, 62 basis points to 1.94%. So you're kind of in that 3 to 4% range in mortgage rates. The rates move when the economy grows, right? Weaker economy means lower rates. Better economy means higher rates, but it stays within that range. Don't think we're going to get 6% mortgage rates ever again unless we fiscally stimulate the economy to a point to where we create inflation, which means that would be a lot of money, which I don't think politicians will do. But there are models to forecast rates and mortgage uh, and, and mortgage rates and bond yields working together hand in hand tied with the economics so, I mean, it took it took millennials a decade to shake the pain that their parents went through during the housing crash in in 2008. And I, I'm, I'm concerned about a similar pain or similar time to shake the pain of rates, even ticking up to that three, four, three to four percent range. Do you anticipate that if we're looking at a normal where the 30 year fixed rate mortgage costs four percent? There will be millennial and then eventually Gen Z buyers who say, whoa, I'm going to wait off until I get my two handle again, like my my brother got in 2020. Here's the thing with that. I remember in 2013 talking about if the when rates go up higher, you know, it'll impact demand. People thought that was crazy because everybody started to get their calculators out and said, oh, well, your payment difference is, you know, only so and so it does. That doesn't matter. The marginal home buyer gets impacted. So the, the rule of thumb in the previous expansion was when the 10-year yield gets about 2.62%, housing gets weaker. On a historical basis, that's very low mortgage rates. Nobody cares about you buying your house in 1981 at 16% mortgage rates. All right, The world is different now. There's a natural equilibrium between supply and demand and mortgage rates. So I would say be mindful of the housing market when the 10-year yield, if it closes above 1.94% and goes higher. Okay, because that has been the historical trend. There's there's certain levels where housing gets soft. And I think this is more of a coastal area and a new home sales area than than in general, because demand gets softer, but it doesn't collapse. And it just on the marginal basis. And I just think that there's in, in certain cities where it's expensive, maybe a home buyer just doesn't pull the trigger. But I think in general, housing has been stable because rates have been lower. But I do, I do believe that if the 10-year yield gets above 1.94%, we will see somewhat of an impact like we did in the previous expansion when the 10-year yield got above 2.62%. Okay, so let's let's hop back to demographics for a second. So the, the big wave you've been talking about is this, the, the, the biggest generation of 30-year-olds um, in 2020 entering home buying years, entering those, those critical household formation years. 
do you are you watching any other generational waves either in the the, the next generation of 30 year olds in the year that that's going to be a massive impact on the housing economy or the other end of the spectrum and i know we've um we've, we've kind of disproven the silver tsunami theory in the equity markets and the housing markets but are there any other uh, uh demographic bands that have you excited or concerned well gen z is pretty big right? Uh, uh, it was Gen X that wasn't the big group. So you have a decent backdrop after 2024. But this five-year period that I've been talking about for many years is the most unique housing period ever, because not only do we have the biggest demographic patch ever, we have the lowest mortgage rates ever. This is why I've been talking about. I'm not one of these higher mortgage rate people. So here it is. This is, this is what it is right now during this global pandemic. The two main drivers of housing beat COVID-19, right? Because economics is demographics, it's productivity. And I just think this is a very unique five-year period. And the thing that we should have been concerned all along is that because housing tenures at 10 years and mortgage rates are low, that real home prices take off in an unhealthy way. Not like what we saw in 2002 to 2005, but still that's sticky inflation. It sticks there, right? And you could see that early uh, when, when COVID hit, people weren't forced to sell. They just took their homes off the market, right? You know, and then when things got better, they just went back and put their homes on the market. So owners are in charge because we've got the best loan profile ever. And when I mean ever, I mean, our family's been in the business and the mortgage business for 26 uh, years. Actually, our family's been in banking since the late 1950s. I've never seen a loan profile cycle as good as what we saw from 2010 to, 20, uh, to 2020. Fixed low debt costs against rising wages. Doesn't get any better than that. They're, the FICO scores are good because cash flow is good. There was no cash out boom. The owners, the homeowners are in charge because they are legit. And you saw that, you know, in the first two months of COVID. So, Logan, in, in March, our country obviously went into lockdown. We we're very concerned if realtors and loan originators can actually do their jobs. Can you meet with clients? Can you get appraisers out? Can we close loans? We did see a period where the industry locked up. Um, but you stay confident. And you, you talked about this July 15th date that you mentioned earlier. Tell us a little bit more about the, the, the data points you were checking in on July 15th. And then my follow-up question to that is going to be, were there any subsequent dates that you were also revisiting to make sure the data was aligning with the theory that you were speaking to? Well, it was called the AB economic model, right? Because the 2020 was so unique. You know, we had to break uh, break it out to three different categories, BC before coronavirus, AD after the disease, and the AB America's back. Now, I tell you, man, I got a lot of grief saying that the U.S. economy was going to be okay in 2020. But it's the model itself. It's the why factors. A lot of it is based on we have to flatten the curve, right? Because think about what was happening in March and April. We were hoarding toilet paper, Right. We don't hoard toilet paper as a country. Like I have an Albertsons here in a really nice neighborhood in, in Irvine. And it was basically, it looked like a picture from Venezuela. Like and I was getting- Like you said on Josh Brown's podcast, we were hoard, hoarding toilet paper when we should yeah, have been hoarding houses. Toilet paper when, when people should have been buying homes. And think about the people yeah. that bought homes during the pandemic, no competition, they got low rates. Good for all of them. Those are, the, those are some really strong individuals out there. Um, but- the virus came in right after the longest economic and job expansion ever in history. So all of a sudden we were, everything was good because February economic data was good. Job growth was picking up, manufacturing data was picking up, non-manufacturing, everything was okay. Then all of a sudden, boom, what? We have a virus here that could kill us? The fear of the virus was probably more damaging than the actual lockdowns because behavior changed. 
You know, I literally was like waiting in line, getting baby carrots for my tortoise. And I'm surrounded by people that look like they're about to, you know, uh, uh, camp for about three years. And I'm thinking, wow, people are just so, you know, they're, the shock of the virus changed behavior. After May 18th, things started to come back and we got back to normal. Purchase application data started to stop going down and started to increase. And then this massive demographic patch came in and mortgage rates came lower. The chaos theory was the main thing was that mortgage rates are going to go lower. And all of a sudden we started to come back. Nobody believed it, right? You can't believe that the U.S. economy would come back. We have multiple V-shaped data lines now. Now, it doesn't mean the general economy is coming back, but I, manufacturing data is coming back, car sales are coming back, retail sales are coming back. But housing has this unique period in time, especially in 2020, that it just was the first one to recover. It's the most outperforming economic sector in a global pandemic because the two things that drive it in this four or five year period are the best ever in history. Try not to overthink this. Just focus on those two things and you realize housing is going to be okay. These are replacement buyers. If we get some move up buyers, some move down buyers, housing, the existing home sale market will be stable, even with the biggest economic and health shock ever reported in history. So you bring up the existing homes, home sale market. And I, uh, I, I, I fear this might be one of the, the, the only areas that you and I uh, dis- disagree to an extent. And uh, I am still of the camp that supply is a barrier to the market's full potential. And as we look forward into Q4 and 2021, inventory in certain markets is going to constrain the, the, the purchase market and the total potential home sales that we could see given the, gener- the um, demographic demand and lower interest rates. Logan, you've been pretty vocal that there's plenty of supply in the market. Inventory is not holding us back. Let's go deeper there. Well, whenever there was a sales miss on an existing home sales report, what do you hear? There's no homes to buy. How can your sales grow? Guess what? When inventory goes down, sales rise, right? When we're This was supposed to be the lowest inventory ever, right? Coming into this year. Guess what? What happened in February? February was the best sales print pre-cycle 11 years. So there were homes to buy, right? It's a marketing gimmick to me, right? I've seen this in 1996 all the way on. You know, during the housing bubble years, people go, there's no homes to buy. We have record-breaking demand. Guess what? That was kind of true because real home prices, if there was this record-breaking demand, no homes to buy, real home prices on a year-over-year basis would be skyrocketing, right? So there is homes to buy when people are ready to buy. Housing tenure is at 10 years. From 1985, it was basically five years going to, to 2007. People are just staying in their homes longer. So for me to like advocate that there's no homes to buy, guess what? When sales got down to 3.91 and inventory is really low, people say there's no way sales can go back. Sales just shot back up in the biggest two-month time frame ever in history. So I don't buy it. I think every institution has kind of marketing gimmicks. And this is one of the most vocal things that I've, because it, it gives an impression that home sales can't grow or there's a potential sales outlet there. It's just not not the case. People are just staying in their homes uh, uh, longer. And guess what? We're going to have cycle highs in total sales to buy in a period where there's no homes to buy either. So it does constrain uh, uh, offers. You know, if, if you have three or four or five uh, offers coming into a house. But listen, demand picked up, inventory goes down, sales rises. Don't overthink this. 
I could give you video collages of existing home sales reports for the last six years. Whenever there's a miss, they say it's because no homes to buy. The next month, sales grow, and voila, there's homes to buy. But Logan, I'm going to overthink this, and I'm going to say, when we look at Sacramento, there's less than a month and a half supply available. That's not a healthy housing market. That's, that's Sacramento, home sales are up year over year. Los Angeles, home sales are up year over year. San Francisco, Seattle, just today, right now. Home sales are up year over year and inventory is up. You know, uh, whenever, it, let me give you a good example, 2018. 2018, builders always say, well, we just have to build more homes. If I ever want to have, in my next life, I want to be the guy that just sells, we have to build more homes. Inventory spiked to six and a half months plus. That's a red flag, right? Guess what? Sales went down. What did the builder CEO said? One of them came on TV, said it was the worst fourth quarter since the Great Recession. Here's your supply. What are you complaining about? This industry sells its product as a partially as an investment. So if you really wanted to build homes, if you're authentically, you would say we need the government to facilitate deficit financing to try to drive home prices down. And the industry will not advocate for that because price is what matters, right? So I'm just, I just have a totally different take on this inventory because in 2018, people were like panicking. Oh my God, I can't sell my house in 36 days. Oh, the builders are, are, are stopping production. We spent the entire year of 2019 flat. Why? Because we took off the excess housing supply that was created at 5% mortgage rate. So no. The beautiful thing about housing economics is that all of these data points are connected. And another area that you've been vocal, and I, and I know there's a segment of the housing market out there that disagrees with you with this on this point as well, but home price appreciation can be dangerous for the health of the housing economy. And with 6.6% home price appreciation in Q2 alone, we're creating a scenario where there could be such a fast acceleration that first time home buyers and other uh, buyers that are looking for more affordable inventory are just boxed out of the market. What's your take on home price appreciation and as it relates to a healthy housing economy? All right, it, first of all, if there was such a thing called an affordability crisis, purchase applications would be down. It wouldn't be at 11-year highs, right? If a crisis means a deflationary event. It doesn't mean that we have 33% year-over-year gains on purchase application data. So when we look at 2002 to 2005, if you look at home prices versus per capita income, home prices took off, right? It took off way above per capita income. Real home prices were up double digits those three years. During from 2008 all the way to 2020, home prices were catching up to per capita income. This is the biggest whiff of the housing bears because they don't believe in this, uh, this chart. I actually, Len Kiefer does a really good job of showing this from Freddie Wack. Years 2020 to 2024 could be problematic in the sense that if people are staying in their homes 10, and let's say it increases 12, 13 years, and mortgage rates stay low, we have the ability to create home prices to go above per capita. That's, the, that's why I've always said years 2020 to 2024 are, are, is gonna be really tricky because home prices have the capacity to, uh, to get out. But this notion that millennials were boxed out was something said in 2012, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. And guess what? Millennials are in their home buying age and the housing market outperformed with home prices growing every single month, really since 2012. So I'm skeptical of the narrative around prices only because mortgage rates go lower. You get mortgage rates above 5%. I got a different perspective now. But if you believe it, like I believe that mortgage rates keep on going lower, 
then affordability is okay. It's fine. Why? Because home buyers are much different than renters. Their, their income profiles are different, especially if you get dual household income. It really takes away a lot of the so-called affordability crisis off the table. And don't focus so much on New York and San Francisco. There's like this morbid obsession about these two cities. The housing market is so much bigger than that, right? So people are saying, well, rents are going down in New York. The whole housing market is going to rush. No. If things were a crisis, like the student loan debt crisis, which is always my favorite, um, it would be a deflationary event. We couldn't have sales grow. But based on demographic profiles, based on years 2020 to 24, everything looks right. Demand's at 11-year highs. If it wasn't for COVID, we would have the existing home sales would have been up four to five hundred thousand this year. Before COVID, that that's what I was looking for because that February data was great. People are so focused about their COVID data and how we're making this recover. We're still negative year to date, so we're still behind what we should have been. So I'm just skeptical of this boxed out student loan debt crisis. All these when purchase application data has been rising steadily with the household formation with the demographic demand right to the point to where the U.S. housing market outperformed the entire world during a global pandemic. So, Logan, in a, another recent conversation, um, I, I heard you speak about home builders, and, um, and it sounds like some of the home builders might be holding back from bringing new inventory to, to market right now. What's your view on um, the impact of new construction on potential new home sales and some of the economic drivers from, from labor to materials that might be impacting uh, what we can expect in terms of new inventory? Okay, I'm not a big fan of what the builders say in terms of labor. And I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna explain why. Go back two, three, four decades. We built a lot more homes with a lot less labor. And it's not like construction productivity is great. It's the worst, right? Out of all the sectors in the economy, construction productivity is the worst. Builders build off their own demand curve. My entire work has been based on this one chart called the monthly supply for new homes. If you look at it, it was always higher in the previous expansion than what we saw really from kind of 1996 to 2001. The builders never had the demand to build more homes. This is where I crossed the line with all the fellow housing economist friends, there was no need to build homes. This is why I put that marker. We're never going to get 1.5 million homes until years 2020 to 2024. Start a year at 1.5 million homes, which we should probably get there next year. But demand warrants building. Why did the builders stop production at the end of 2018 in terms of the rate of growth? They were still building a lot of homes. That construction was still big, but they stopped because demand uh, stopped. Monthly supply spiked. The builders live off of that monthly supply. When you see that thing break above six and a half percent or six and a half months, they stop really building. We saw the same thing early in COVID. You know, we had this big monthly supply spike. Builders held back and then we just got back. There wasn't enough new home sales to warrant more building because we're an older country, right? The builders have this competition. It's called the existing home sales market. Guess what? It's massive. Cheaper, older homes from all sizes against this very small new home sale market. So I, I've just not been a fan of the labor costs. I've not been a fan of the, we don't have a, 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 a lumber prices went up so much. Well, guess what? Housing starts are coming back. Why? Because new home sales come back. Supply and demand, they work together. So I, I think these are all minor variables. When new home sales grow, housing starts going to grow. End of story. Everything else is it needs deficit financing to get money into states for them to build because the states are kind of uh, uh, broke with their budgets. So if you really wanna be a, somebody who advocates for housing, 
You need to convince the housing industry that we don't want home prices to go up. We want to overbuild the market. And I don't believe the housing market wants to endorse that. That's so why you, you I don't started conversation. I started this conversation giving you, you props for being willing to go out on a limb and talk about the future. Um, you've been our, our resident housing bull uh, for, for as long as I can remember. Um, and I think I know the answer to this since we're talking about kind of that 2020 to 24 band. But what should we expect in 2021? And we focus this conversation a lot on the purchase market. Um, what should we expect in terms of the total origination mix? And uh, so what are you seeing for purchase and refi next year? Well, the AB model had one uh, key factor in it, that the 10-year yield rises above 1%. And I think if we didn't have that second surge in cases, we kind of would have been almost there. So I believe rates will rise just because economic growth should be better next year. And it doesn't take real much. You know, even though I retired from the mortgage industry this year, it, you get a quarter difference and that rate interim market is out. Because guess what? We're always going to have the same article written every year. Every year, there's going to be an article that says, guess what? 10 million people could refinance. And guess what? They never do, really. Uh, you know, there's a certain type of home buyer that, uh, homeowner that does that rate interim refinance. Cash out loans are a little bit limited. So when rates rise up, you know, if that person has a good rate, you know, they're really not going to cash out either to give themselves a higher rate unless they need the money. So I think originations stay good for the purchase market. But unless something terrible happens and the 10 year, the 10 year old should still be under 1%. But if I write and we do get a vaccine and then the last wave of the uh, COVID-19 economic sectors come back, the 10 year yield should rise. Now I still have a little bit of time left before this year's out to get that 10 year yield above 1%, but rates should rise just based on growth. Nothing else, not federal debt, not what Calabria does with a fee or anything like that. Growth drives rates, drives the bond market. That's your big driver for next year. Logan, thank you so much for your time and your contributions to this event in the housing wire community. It's been a pleasure to learn more about your views on housing industry, economic drivers, the chaos theory. And, and don't feel life. bad for the housing bubble boys or the forbearance crash bros. They brought it on themselves. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Logan. I'm going to wrap this one up. Thank you again. Have a great afternoon. Thanks for listening to the daily download today and I hope everyone has a wonderful weekend. And if you haven't already, don't forget to hit that subscribe button on the podcast so you don't miss out on the news of the day as we continue to share the hottest topics in the industry every weekday. And with that, that's a wrap on today's podcast episode. Catch everyone here again on Monday.